This is the First Christian Church of Lubbock podcast, where we exist to share the gospel and edify the church through Bible-based teachings and content. I am your host, Scott Hall. On today's episode, Pastor Paul Carpenter will be teaching on Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. This excerpt is taken from our Wednesday noon Bible study hosted on August 26, 2020. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we can see and experience that the season we're in is unique, that it would appear that you are at the same time choosing to loosen the restrictions on the consciences of many people. Uh, the uh, open, um, uh, almost arrogant um, disbelief in you or lack of fear of God seems to be uh, increasing. And at the same time, you are tightening down the screws on your church. Through the Holy Spirit, the conviction of Christ is coming upon us and the fruit is blooming and And it would appear we can either have a world where the church is fruitful and disliked by the world, or a time when everything's easy, but the church is not also fruitful. And I'm grateful, Lord, we live in these days. Lord, we pray that we would not seek uh, the um, acceptance by uh, unbelievers, but rather we would plead for their salvation, that we would cling to Christ, the one who told us that the world will not like us, even hate us, for it hated him first. After all, whose fruit are we bearing in the world, our own or Christ's? It is Christ's. Lord God, we pray that in this time, if you choose to let it persist and even grow more intense, we pray the church would be found faithful and fruitful We come today that our feet would be in the vine. We pray that we would cling unto Christ as he embraces us. Lord, we thank you. We ask for this mysterious work to be done today as we open the word of God and hear from Matthew's gospel about the one you charged and prepared before Christ to be the voice in the wilderness calling out, prepare. We bless your name and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way of the Lord make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, He said to them, you brood of vipers, 
Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we've been walking through Matthew's gospel, he's done a great job of presenting Jesus Christ. He wants us to see Jesus as the fulfillment of every Old Testament promise. And he makes those who study his gospel, he makes our lives easy because he quotes from the Old Testament and tells us to turn there. And so the first thing you see in John, uh, Matthew chapter 3 are the words, in those days, in those days which should mean two things. Number one, what was going on uh, up to this point? If we flip back just to the, the verses before, we see that Jesus Christ has returned from Egypt, is raised in Nazareth, and he's being brought up by his, uh, his family. While living in Nazareth, John the Baptist, Jesus is in Nazareth. Now, John the Baptist in those days is called to go preach. But in those days also means something else. Because Matthew quotes from Isaiah, uh, what he's pointing out is, is that the prophecies of Isaiah are taking place, being fulfilled in the days of John the Baptist. So let's flip to, to Isaiah chapter 40. And what you have in the, the book of Isaiah, we've studied this, this book, uh, I think, four, uh, three years ago. Isaiah is known as a, the little Bible or the fifth gospel, it's, it's uh, made up of 66 chapters, and there are 66 books of the Bible. Um, the first 39 chapters represents the first 39 books of the Bible, which are the Old Testament. And then the next 27 chapters of Isaiah are, are believed to represent the 27 chapters of the New Testament. Uh, in fact, if you look at uh, the middle of the, the New Testament portion of Isaiah, uh, from Isaiah 40 through Isaiah 66, and you find this, the middle verse of all of those things, it's found in Isaiah 53, and I'm sure you've heard of Isaiah 53, uh, but it's Isaiah 53, verse 5. Isaiah 53, verse 5 is the center of the gospel, according to Isaiah, and that reads, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. The, the mystery of, now we look back in hindsight and can see all these things. You ever look back on your life and see all the things, at least some of the things God was doing like St. Paul, we say, oh my God, how inscrutable are your ways? Who has ever given to you that you should have to repay him? Who's ever counseled the Lord that God should take our advice? 
he's so amazing and so powerful. And even the way that God put together the prophecies, in hindsight, we can see his finger, fingerprints all around them. Matthew is calling our attention to the gospel or to the book of Isaiah, which again, many now call the fifth gospel because it's so Jesus riddled. And he points us to Isaiah 40. Now, if you've ever heard uh, Handel's Messiah, you know the song, Comfort, Comfort Ye My People. Before that time, there's the buildup, and then finally you hear, Comfort, Comfort Ye My People, and there's a, it's a real change uh, in the portion of that, uh, that piece of work. And that's because we have exited the Older Testament, and we have entered the Newer Testament. Just a reminder, the Old Testament builds up the truth of the fall of man, the need for the Christ. Uh, it predicts Jesus, but the New Testament begins with the Gospels revealing Jesus, and then the book of Acts preaching Jesus, the epistles explaining Jesus, and the book of Revelation expecting his return. And so for Matthew to point us to Isaiah chapter 40, and say, in those days, what he's saying is, the days that John the Baptist stood to preach are the days that Isaiah was writing about. Let's read his words. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins, a voice of one calling in the desert. In the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain shall and hill shall be made low. The rough ground shall be level and the rugged places a plain. And the glory of God, Yahweh, will be revealed. And all mankind together shall see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out, and I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Can you hear John the Baptist preaching? John the Baptist, who's standing in the middle of a desert, in a time of self-indulgence, in a time when you could ride the waves of Jewish leadership and become a Pharisee and a Sadducee and bend the rules of God and pretend that you're a moral person and you can have access into the temple where if you're disabled or left out or unclean by their definitions of unclean, you're forbidden to enter, but the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, all on the backs of a religion that's been twisted God's word has been taken and sold. As Jesus says, you've turned my father's word and house into a marketplace when it's designed to be a prayer, a house of prayer for many nations. Here, John the Baptist, who was the true prophet of God in those days, anointed of the Holy Spirit, could have lived in the big city. He could have taught from a pulpit. He could have uh, wore long robes. He could have been accepted by men he decided to be a living visual protest against the self-indulgent nature of the religious at the time. He ate locusts and wild honey and he wore clothing like 
a rugged outdoorsman would wear. He's living ahead of his time because the preaching he's given, as we'll study, is to say the times are changing. The kingdom of God is nigh. And when God returns in the way that he's chosen to return, if you have over-identified with this world, you're going to hate it and reject him. Jesus himself said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The people who are over-invested in this world with the way things are, uh, the comforts of man, the glory of ourselves, our self-worship, our self-indulgence, is going to have a much harder time, yea, an impossible time, to receive Christ as Lord than somebody who has nothing left to lose. Isn't that what Janis Joplin said? Freedom's just another way of saying nothing left to lose. It's happening. It's coming. It's here. And so John the Baptist is living his life and preaching Isaiah 40. We're going to keep going, but he's saying the grass withers, the flower falls. All men, all flesh is like grass. You've heard this from 1 Peter. 1 Peter quotes Isaiah 40. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Now, verse 9 says, You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, Here is your God. See, the sovereign Yahweh comes with power. His arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. Now, one thing we see about the preaching of the word of God in the seasons of grace is that God's word is not designed to be studied and analyzed. It's to be heralded. Churches and pastors and elders and Christians aren't meant to come to Bible study and study the word of God, analyze it, piece it apart, and pretty much end every sermon with, isn't that neat? No, but this is the word of the Lord. God doesn't want his word just known. He wants it heralded, shouted, celebrated. Now, God makes the point in Isaiah that the Jews haven't been able to see yet, but the right arm of God is the right arm of the Trinity. That's the name Jesus Christ. As we remember, God's three in one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father conceives of all things. The Son accomplishes all things, and the Holy Ghost applies all of the Son's work in real time. And so for God to say through his prophets, see the sovereign Lord comes with power and see his arm rules for him. Jesus is coming. His reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. Verse 10, 11 says, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? When Christian was uh, three years old, John Paul's age, three and a half or so, he, in the morning he told me that he had a dream. And he said, uh, in the dream, God picked me up. And of course, I've, what did he look like? And God, he's, Christian said, uh, I had a dream where God uh, picked me up. He knew it was God. I, I believe the father uh, he's speaking of. And he said, God picked him up and hugged him and tickled him. 
And uh, we've had, all three of our kids have had these experience, different experiences, but similar. And so he's, and I said, well, what do he look like? He said, well, he's really big. And I said, I bet he is. And, and, and he's, again, he's like John Paul explaining, a, a child explaining these things to me. And, and then he said, and his hands, I couldn't see his face, but his hands, his fingernails were black and blue. And of course, I'm thinking, oh, no, that doesn't sound good. What is that? Two weeks later, we're on the couch in the living room going through a, a picture book of science. And we get to the Milky Way and the stars and the galaxies. And Christian says, that's what God's fingernails look like. He's got the whole world in his fingernails. I'll tell you other stories at other times, but you know, what Isaiah is saying here is who has measured the waters that God can hold in the hollow of his hand? What can you hold right here? God can hold a million oceans. Uh, who has uh, seen the breadth that his hands can mark off in heaven? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on scales, the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? I'll answer that, no one. Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. Tell that to the world right now. No fear of God, complete respect and honor for yourselves. Watch the conventions happening right now. It's preaching. Sermons. They're sermons. Both sides. The greatest honor in this land is to become an American citizen. The greatest honor, no, the greatest thing in this land is to become a Christian. To be born again. The world can't help it. They're both building Babel. It's what we do apart from God's grace. We sprinkle Jesus in here and there, maybe to get the Jesus vote, but you know, it's not like God needs us. If, Je if Jesus Christ was sent by God to redeem only five people, and that was the plan, and then God recreates the heavens and the earth, and he gives a new Jerusalem, and five people are what God has chosen to be the perfect amount of people to be in heaven, to display God's glory, then that's the way it is. God doesn't need a big church. The church needs a big God. You know, the, the sheep, for instance, our strength is not found in how many we are or how many assets we have or how well-respected we are in the world. The, the, the strength of the sheep is not found in the sheep. The strength of the sheep is found in who their shepherd is. 
God doesn't need a church. God has chosen to have a church. Before creation, God had no need at all. But as an expression of his love for his only begotten son, he created this world so that Christ could have a redeemed humanity as a love gift from the Father to the Son. When you read things like Isaiah and you hear things like John the Baptist, if John the Baptist showed up today and preached in America, he would be treated at least as bad as he was back then. How can you tell me to repent? Look at all these great things we've done. Surely God is on our side. Don't you know the Pharisees said the same thing? You know, it's my goal every week to trick you all so you don't know how I vote. I'm not saying don't vote. I'm just saying your vote. Scripture says God has already picked the president. He knows every king before they happen. He loves to cloak his sovereignty in what appears to be randomness. We have a great honor to be able to vote, but the real strength of the church is your faith in Jesus, in your prayer life, in your ministry to the lost. We have the same ability that the New Testament church had, and they didn't have a vote. They didn't have any representation in office, and they thrived because of the Holy Ghost and the Bible. I'm going to keep reading. So he goes on in verse 18, it says, To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare to him? For as, uh, as for an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A, a man, too, poor to present such an offering, selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that would not topple. He's talking about the religions of the world that mean nothing. Then he says, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the very beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretched out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to nothing. He reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown. No sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. They, like our whirlwind, sweeps away like the chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift your eyes, look to the heavens, who created all of these he who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. You understand that? Because of God, not one star is missing. Not because of how great the stars are is God proven to exist. Rather, the placement of the stars are 100% dependent upon the sovereign work and provision and faithfulness of God who made them. Why do you say to me then, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, that my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is forgotten, disregarded by God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. 
He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men would stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. This is John's sermon. In those days, Jesus is growing up. He's becoming a man. He's fixing to come out in public light. John's preaching. John may have been preaching for 10 years. We don't know how long his ministry was. But in those days, from Isaiah 40, I've written some notes here. Number one, the kingdom of God is near. Major changes are coming, including mercy to God's people and swift judgment to God's enemies. John makes that clear, doesn't he? He loves that part of the sermon. Threshing floors, axes at the base of the tree. He's not afraid to talk openly about uh, judgment. So major changes are coming. And the second thing we see, in addition to the kingdom of God is near, is that the Lord's presence is what ushers in the kingdom. In Isaiah, we see, behold, see your sovereign Lord is coming with his mighty right arm to rule. So the kingdom of God is ushered in by the very presence of God. Now we know that that presence is through Jesus Christ. He's about to appear and he's about to rule. And so what John preaches from Isaiah 40 is to repent, which means see the inevitable and change today. I had uh, Mormons come to my house one time. I'm sure you've never had that happen. Nice guys, and, and I, gave, I gave everybody a chance, and I really like to understand where they're coming from. I'm not afraid of other, of other perspectives because the truth is the truth, and if it's really the truth, they can handle being in the presence of other perspectives. And so they were going on with uh, how it works, and finally they get to uh, heaven, and they use this acronym or this uh, explanation called sea turtle, celestial, terrestrial, telestial. And if you don't know much about Mormonism, you're fine. But so they're talking about all these details they know, and in the celestial, there's only 144,000. It's all men, and then the telestial, it'll be pretty good, and then uh, terrestrial will be pretty much like now, except nobody dies or gets sick or hurts or hurt, and pretty much everybody ends up there unless you're really bad which is, by the way, Mormonism is not Christian. I don't want to start a thing. I've got a lot of Mormon friends. I love them to pieces. They're great people. Uh, I call them the Aggies of, of religion, rule followers. But it's not, it's not, the, it's not Christian. Um, anyhow, so my point to them was, so let's say that's true. That's the way it is. I believe in Jesus. And I'm living my life for Christ. And so if that's true, that's, that's inevitable, right? And they're like, yeah. I said, okay. I don't, I mean, let's say that is the truth. So then when I die, I'm going to end up in one of those three places. Okay, cool. That doesn't, I mean, I'm going to live my life for Christ. I'm going to, like, it doesn't change. There's nothing I can do to change what's inevitable. I already believe in Jesus. So if that throws me in the telestial circle, then that's great. If you're wrong, you're wrong. We'll find out. I think they're wrong. It's 
kind of neither here nor there. But the Christian teaching is a little starker. It's better and it's worse. It's better in that there is no classism system in heaven. There may be different ranges of glory, but we'll all be together in the house of God. And it's worse because there is no gradual system. You're either in the tornado shelter or you're not. And I have never met a tornado that gives a rip about your morals, your ethics, or how many children you have at home. God, like on the Passover, has provided the shelter. And the day is coming, John is preaching, when it's too late. So this is inevitable. It's going to happen. It's kind of like death. It's going to happen. Write your will now, not later. Just by writing your will, it doesn't mean you're going to die. You're going to die anyhow. Because this is inevitable, go ahead and, and, and repent. Change your life now. What's interesting is that John is preaching these things before Jesus Christ fully appears. But he starts to preach. Days are coming. The day is now when things are changing. Change with it. So he talks about repentance, and he talks about fruit of repentance. And I've listed a couple things based on Isaiah and Matthew 3. Number one, one sign of repentance is that you're waiting on the Lord. That you're welcoming Christ. Number two is that you stop living a self-indulgent life. That's what John did. That's why the poor came out to meet him. Because they had more in common with him than they did with the Sadducees that were getting rich off of the word of God. Stop living a self-indulgent life. Uh, see your desperate need for the Lord and continue to grow in hunger for his return. As I've written here underneath, in other words, repentance, according to John, is completely give up on your former life and lifestyle. Um, what would you say to... Uh, somebody living in the colonies of the United States of America before 1776 who was loyal to King, well, King George, um, was delaying the revolution. They said, you know, I don't mind taxation without representation. I mean, just, you know, there's two ways to look at this, you know, uh, let, let's, let's, let's find a way to, let's not, you know, fight with the British. We're going to lose. I mean, they're the greatest empire in the world. Uh, their military is unstoppable, so we're not going to win. So I mean, what, in hindsight, what, what would you tell that person? You're wrong. <laughs> Go ahead and jump on board and join the, uh, the American forces because history has already been written. I'm, com I'm coming to you from the future, and we win, the British lose. We end up down the road having a great relationship with them. It's nothing personal, but we're going to win. And so what God has come to you through the prophets is to make it clear that it's okay to wholly throw yourself into the providence and mercy of Jesus Christ. It's okay to leave a life of self-indulgence. You won't regret it. 
I think one of the worst sermons we hear from the devil is that if you give Jesus your life and you deny yourself and you live for the holiness of the gospel, you'll regret it. One of the worst lies he teaches is that you're going to look back on your life and you're going to have sacrificed, unneeded, not needingly, and it's going to be a vain sacrifice that didn't count. It's not true. John is preaching to a bunch of people to say the inevitable is written, it's coming, and lo and behold, a lot of people listen, and they go ahead and repent and are baptized for repentance, living as if Jesus Christ has already come, knowing that he will and no longer finding um, comfort or identity in what's popular or normal in that culture. That's the preaching of John. Now, let's look at how John the Baptist physically marks that dividing line between the Old and the New Testament. Number one is that he is living according to Isaiah 40. Have you ever met a preacher that doesn't practice what he preaches? That's not John. John's eating locusts. As I mentioned before, John knows he's anointed of God. He knows he's been set apart for this mission. He fears God. He hungers for the Messiah. He could have easily leveraged that to have a prominent place in Jerusalem. But he feels called by the Holy Spirit to go live in the wilderness, to practice first and then preach. And he's practicing a visual, physical protest against the self-indulgent lifestyle of God's quote-unquote people, using quote-unquote religion to live a carnal, worldly life not John. Number two is that he is the promised prophet of the Lord's coming. Uh, In 1 Kings, uh, there's a prophet that's to come with the same spirit as Elijah. The last book in the Old Testament is Malachi. And the last uh, two verses of Malachi, so the, 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 the caboose of the Old Testament, right before Matthew, I'm going to read it for you. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great, that great and dreadful day of the Lord, uh, that the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. And those are the last words of the Old Testament. I've always wondered what the Jews do with that. Like, you know, we have revelation. It says, you know, amen. And there's a big doxology. Blessed is the one who's waiting. Blessed is the one who doesn't change any words from this book. Jesus Christ says, behold, I am coming soon. There's all this hope. And on this one, it just says, there's a prophet coming before the great and dreadful day of the Lord and great things will come. And it just kind of hangs. John is that prophet. Malachi was written about 350 years past, and then Matthew writes of the Christ event. Uh, We also see that John the Baptist practices and preaches orthodoxy as opposed to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He implies that the teachings and the fruit of the Jewish leaders are not in line with God's word. And therefore, they should repent. 
But they didn't come to repent. They came to investigate John. So John looks up and he is preaching the good news of the Messiah. The kingdom of God is at hand. He's also preaching that God's uh, coming through Christ is going to come with judgment. And he looks up and he sees these preachers who are preaching a counter gospel to his gospel. Uh, And they're showing up and they still feel like, number one, they're right. um, And number two, that uh, they have all the momentum. The, they have the bigger church. They, every, their, their head pastor serves on the board of the, the thing. They're involved in the parade every year. And John's just this little street preacher that, he's, he's, frankly, he's crazy, they think. And so here come the pastors with their three-piece suits, and they show up, and they're investigating John. Enough people have left their church and have gone to John for them to actually get up and go check it out. They go all the way there, and John looks at them and says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? And, of course, internally they're thinking, (laughs) First off, if there's wrath coming, it's not coming for us. Nobody warned us of the coming. We didn't come here to be warned or to repent. We came here just to see what types of heresy you're using to steal people from us. He goes on to say that there must be a supernatural conversion, that Abraham's children are the promised children, not necessarily the biological descendants of Abraham. We see in Romans chapter 9 and in Romans chapter 11, Paul makes the exact same argument that not all who are the sperma of Abraham are of the promise, but rather the people who come with repentance and faith are the people that God promised to give to his servant Abraham. And so once again, there's a misunderstanding and the Sadducees and the Pharisees are showing up believing that their place in the covenant is based upon their ethnicity. As Paul said, if I had any reason to boast in the fl- they have any reason to boast in the flesh, I have more. Boasting in the flesh means boasting in anything other than the gospel, God's sovereign work to bring sinners into the, into the covenant. Paul says, I'm a Hebrew born of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. When it comes to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. I was considered a Pharisee. I have every reason to believe that I am saved I, compared to anybody else, would have more reason to believe that I'm saved by being a Jew. But he said, that's not what saved me. The grace of God through Jesus Christ is what saved me. And what the Pharisees don't understand is that it's not going to be their lifestyle that saves them or their education, or what people think about them that will save them, it's going to be a supernatural work of God who is able to take stones and turn them into children. As in Ezekiel 36, I will take away their heart of stone and give them the heart of flesh. And so he is coming directly into contradiction with the confidence that many religious leaders at that time had. 
and yet he's being received by many listeners who don't have any self-confidence. It's nearly impossible for you or me to repent and to put our trust in Jesus if first we have overconfidence in ourselves. He also preaches uh, wrath and judgment probably more than any other New Testament preacher. Along with redemption, John understands that just as much as Jesus will come to gather in the wheat and the sheep and the children of God, he is also coming to bring judgment on the weeds, on the goats, and on the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. In all three uh, synoptic gospels, this is highlighted. The loud, brash preaching that all men are like grass. I've also written in a sub-bullet here that John the Baptist seems to misunderstand that Jesus is going to come a second time. So he is full of the Spirit, and he is the anointed preacher, but he's also a human. And so he's practically expecting uh, Jesus to do what we expect him to do when he comes back next time. Hebrews says that Jesus will come twice. The first he comes to bear the sins of his people. And the second time he'll return to receive all who eagerly wait for him. So I've written that. He first comes to bear God's wrath for his people. The second is to receive those who wait and to bring judgment on those uh, condemned. If you'll flip to Matthew 11 with me, John the Baptist pops up again. We'll study this in detail in uh, probably three years when we get to it. Um, so Matthew 11, we'll start with verse 1 through 3. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Now, Jesus then goes, we won't do the whole thing because we'll study that again in a few years. But John is, when he sees Jesus the first time, he says, behold, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, he knows. He knows that the, the days are changing. He's certain. And he knows that it's, it's going to include God himself through his only begotten son coming. He knows that. But he's confused for some reason here. And many scholars believe that John was confused because Jesus Christ hadn't come with swift judgment. Jesus has been here for more than an hour, several months, maybe 18 months at this point, could be two years, and there's still wickedness. Imagine Jesus returning from heaven. He comes down with clouds of glory, armies of angels, and the saints are behind him like the train of his robe. He has a sword issuing from his mouth. He's on a white horse. It says, Lord of Lords on his thigh. And he's coming to judge the quick and the dead. And he comes to earth and he walks around and he does some things, does some more things. Finally, after about 18 months, one of us says, excuse me, I don't want to interrupt what you're doing, but are you Jesus? Because I, I heard that there's, you know, there's going to be like blood to the horse's bridles and books of life and 
resurrection and I mean, I don't want to step on your toes, but I'm just, I'm kind of confused here. That's what John is saying, many believe, is are you the one? Because swift judgment has not come. Another thing that we can see that's uh, interesting about John, that's probably different than the way we think about things, is in John chapter 1, verse 29, uh, John the Baptist says, uh, he calls Jesus the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And of course, immediately I, I think of when God, uh, when Abraham took I, uh, Isaac on the mountain to be slaughtered and then God stopped it and then provided a ram and and Later, we have followed the story of that ram through the Passover and all the stories about blood sacrifice. And then finally, Jesus is the fulfillment and he's the lamb that dies in the place of the children of God. That's all true. But the way John describes him as taking away the sin of the world, I've written here that he may not be focused on specifically the redemption of the church as much as the cleansing of God's broken creation in general. When John sees Jesus, he believes that Jesus will be kind and redeem his people and punish the wicked. But he may be looking at Jesus in general terms of saying, that's the one who will deal with sin. That's the one who will deal with the devil. That's the one who will deal with uh, perversions. That's the one who will deal with uh, the fall of man, he's the one that will deal with, with uh, cancer and pollution and uh, uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth and all the stuff. He's going to deal with all of that. And John is actually more referring to Jesus coming to purchase and redeem this creation to prepare for the next creation. And so some people, I think, are confused when they read through the first parts of the gospel. They see this guy it's always around Christmas. The lectionary has John the Baptist showing up, preaching from Isaiah about Jesus because John comes across as so mad because he is preaching in light of the wrath of God. So we could argue, and I'm, the Bible is not wrong, but John may have been misled a little bit because he doesn't understand that Jesus first came to receive the wrath of God on behalf of us, and he's going to come again to enact the wrath of God upon all those who don't receive him. It's two phases. Now, as we round this out on the back, John then says, I baptize you with water. So he's out there preaching repentance, and he's saying, this is happening. Times are changing. We're entering a new season, the Christ event. It's as impactful as the event of creation, and it's going to be as impactful as the consummation of Jesus Christ returning. It's 33 years. Jesus will walk the earth. Then the season of the church will come. And so he's calling out at the beginning of the season, baptism for repentance. And I've written here that this is a baptism of removal of self-confidence, of worldliness, or hope and solidarity with the ways of mankind. That's repentance. The 
the same right now I'm facing south and y'all are facing north. The same move for me to face north means that I'm turning away from the south. Coming to Christ and repenting away from your former confidences are different sides of the same coin. So when we're baptized today, we have faith, we go to the waters of baptism, we're doing it at the same time. But when John came to preach, the baptism of union with Christ had not been presented yet. Jesus had not yet died for the sins of his church. Jesus had not ascended. The Holy Spirit had not yet come. And so what we have here is an anticipatory portion of what we still do today, but it's still just as necessary. Baptism is the removal of self-confidence, of worldliness, of hope and solidarity with the ways of mankind. One of the weeds that has continued to grow up in the church for 2,000 years is that when we walk up and peer into the manger, the feed trough in, uh, in the nativity scene, which is designed to hold one person and one person only, we look in that trough and there are all sorts of things that we allow in there. We believe and we have confidence in human progress. We have confidence in our nation. We have confidence in ourselves. We have confidence in hard work. We have, we have confidence in other people. We, we put vicarious confidence in our pastor. And what John would say is look in that manger, and if there's anything in there that's not Christ, get rid of it. The baptism of repentance is to say, I wholly choose to set aside any lasting confidence or over-identity identifying with anything that used to bring me hope that's not Jesus Christ. And if you don't do that, life will help you do it over time because people will let you down. Or you have to bury someone you never thought you'd have to. Or you have to take steps that you're too weak to take. Or you yourself, your body gives out and you are at the mercy of God alone and see how good your hard work works then. If you are where you are in life because of your diligence and hard work, repent. Because you're not where you're supposed to be. But if you are where you are right now because of the grace of God in your life, then cling to Christ and rejoice. This is the baptism he offered. And who hated it the most? The good people. The religious people, the Pharisees, they didn't want to start over. Last, uh, he, he also writes uh, that he, di he differentiates this baptism from the baptism of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and the Father. The threefold name that we offer, we now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That baptism, which can take a willing, needy soul and produce the miracle of redemption, holiness, and rebirth. Repentance is something necessary for salvation. There is no union with Christ unless you repent. But as John preaches over and over again, that what Christ has come to do is produce a supernatural, uh, beyond moralistic, beyond your human decision event, and that is the regeneration of a heart that has come unto Christ. 
So we're going to close today with what Jesus says about John the Baptist back on Matthew chapter 11. Again, just to frame all this, we've had Jesus. Jesus was predicted. Jesus has the genealogy that he came to redeem through Joseph. Uh, Jesus was born and he fled. He was uh, honored by the Magi and he was resisted by the people in power. But nobody can stop the will of God. John rises up. These are the days when Isaiah 40 is taking place. What that means to you and to me is that it's behind us. You don't need to ask, is this coming? It's happened and it's happening still. That Jesus is the Christ, the one who came, the carpenter of Nazareth, is the true Messiah. We don't need to question that. And then Jesus says of John, who was willing to stand and preach, I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, he who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What I want you to see is Jesus pays him a great compliment, but also a stark reality. John the Baptist was the chosen vessel to herald the season of God's coming kingdom through Christ. What an honor. But just because he was the herald does not mean that he didn't need Jesus Christ just as much as you do. Better to be least in the kingdom of God than to be the greatest of all people born of women. This is the offering he gives to all who would believe to be greater than John the Baptist, but believing that of course John the Baptist believed in Jesus too. We'll be with him, we'll celebrate with him. But along the lines of Christ, through the, his herald, the church is still called to this day to carry the banner that John the Baptist started we are to call out into the world with our lives, with our relationships, with our prayers. We are not to study the word of God and analyze it and leave it there, but we are to herald it and celebrate it because the days are dark. John the Baptist stood and delivered so that we could receive the Holy Spirit and faith in Jesus and do the same. These are our days. Let us pray. Lord, as we continue to experience the truth of who Jesus is, we thank you for Matthew, who has done such a great job in your spirit's power to, to help us see that Christ is uh, the full fulfillment of every Old Testament promise and truth. Uh, we thank you, O oh God, that you have given us every reason to trust you. We also praise you, Lord, that you've um, called us to repentance and we had the courage to have no confidence in ourselves, but to have full confidence in Christ. And for this, Lord, you give repentance and redemption and salvation. Lord, no matter how far we go down the path, may we continue to look into Christ's eyes and see in him and in him alone as the reason, the root, and the cause of every gift of grace that we've received. 
May we not complicate it, but now may we tighten up and be the people of God in this world that so desperately needs the church to no longer be conformed to the world, but to be conformed unto Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.